0: Listening to the Game on Glio podcast with Shannon Trapagan.
1: Welcome to Game on Glio, the podcast providing hope, inspiration, education, and real conversations around the difficult journeys of being diagnosed with brain cancer, including glioblastoma. I'm your host, Shannon Trapagan. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Game on or visit our website, the Game on for insights and guest snapshots. If you enjoy our show, please consider writing a review. Also share us with a friend. This podcast is in partnership with Brains for the Cure. Learn more at brainsforthecure.org. Babe, the day we met, I saw in you my forever. I saw the place I wanted to be, the person I wanted to be, my future. In your eyes, I felt and saw a love I never thought existed. You felt like home. For 20 years, you have felt like home because you are my home. That's why no matter where we have moved, where we've traveled, or what life throws at us, I'm always home because I have you. Do you remember when we went to Italy? We stopped at a street market in Venice, and you saw this handcrafted leather-bound journal. You bought it for me. You wanted me to feel inspired. It's from these pages that I write this letter to you now. You've always inspired me. You've inspired me to dream, pushed me to create. I always felt so complete because my soul has finally found its other half, 20 years, and my love for you grows stronger every day. While you may not remember or understand this right now, you will. You will carry this with you. I will never leave your side. You are my home, and we will get through this. I love you more than life, and I cannot wait to be embraced in your arms once again. Forever your wife, soulmate, and best friend, Shannon. That is a very intimate and personal letter that I wrote to my husband after he was admitted into the hospital in September of 2020. I wrote it a couple of weeks after he was admitted with the realization that he may not leave. While I hadn't fully embraced that thought or idea yet, I wanted him to know what I felt. He read the letter. He was slowly starting to lose his verbalization, but he was still able to read and understand. And he kept that letter in his hand Literally held on to it for a week and then he told the nurse to leave it on his table by his bed because he wanted it near him Loving someone is the hardest work you will ever do in your life True love like what mike and I have had is not true love because it's easy. It's true love because we fought for it. We worked at it We protected it because we recognized what it was We fit together like two jigsaw pieces perfectly placed, and every day we cherished that what we had was special. This month marks one year since my husband died. I think about the path that I am now on, the journey that I have had to take over the past year, the cross that Mike and I were asked to bear during the 14 months of his diagnosis. Nobody wants to go through suffering or grief and loss. It is not easy. It is not planned or expected. It is not taught to us from a young age on how to cope or how to deal. Everybody handles the journey differently. Some compartmentalize, push it aside, continue on with life as normal, having only brief remembrances or thoughts. And while that's not the healthiest way, it's still their way. And some of you may have experienced that. What I've learned over the past year is that grief needs to be moved through. It needs to be embraced. It needs to be coddled, held, understood. It's okay to not be okay. It's okay to be scared and lost. It's okay to move from sadness to anger to scared to strength all in one day. And just because we've hit the one year mark doesn't mean it gets easier as a matter of fact i have spoken to many widows especially some young widows who have said it got harder for them the second year because others on the peripheral have moved on and those in the center still have to cope and deal with how to move on how to move forward i don't think there's really ever a moving on it's a moving forward But in order to move forward, you have to move through grief. And that can be very painful and very difficult. It's okay to be emotional and to be as sad as you need to be. Because along the way, you will find light moments. You will start to find that balance. Now, I can't say that I'm quite there yet, but this is all part of the process. This journey for me has been extremely hard I have found comfort and solace in friends and family, in other young widows, but nobody ever expects to become a widow at 43. You don't plan for that. And after spending two decades with your true love, protecting that love and working as hard as we did, to all of a sudden be thrust into a life of singularity, taking care of everything solely on your own. living in a very quiet house, waking up and going to bed day after day, knowing that they are not right by your side, getting used to not feeling his touch or his kiss or his embrace, handling all of the finances, fixing the house, taking care of the dogs. It's a lot to take on when you have spent so many years alongside of your partner. And so that journey through grief It doesn't happen quickly, and you don't move through it cleanly, neatly. It's messy. It is difficult. There are times that I have thought about what would have happened if Mike was diagnosed later in life, even if this was the card he was dealt, and this was his destiny no matter what. What if he was 80, 81? What would that have looked like? And while a cancer diagnosis is not an easy one. I have wondered what could have been. We would have traveled more. We would have had our children. We would have watched them grow. We would have had the feeling of retiring together. I would have been able to watch Mike teach our children how to play soccer and baseball, walk the dogs, make Halloween costumes and go trick or treating, watch their eyes light up for the first time as they realize that Christmas is something so much more to children than just decorating a tree there was so much taken from us the daughter we were supposed to adopt is two years old now i don't know where she is but i think about her all the time i think about the child that we lost in pregnancy and part of my grief journey is recognizing the significance of the loss because it isn't just one loss i don't know if i will be a parent or not going forward And all of this is stuff that I have to move through. On the night that Mike passed, it is still a very private moment. But given the season that we're in, I was thinking about it a tiny bit today. There was a sweater that I used to absolutely love. I used to wear it every October because it was this burnt orange color. And it was gorgeous. And I loved wearing it this time of year. I wore it the night that he passed away. And when I got home, I folded it up I placed it on the blanket that he passed away in. I put them in the hope chest, and I will never wear it again. It is okay when an anniversary, a birthday, a significant day comes around that reminds you of the one that you lost. It's okay to feel anxious, or scared, or nervous leading up to that anniversary. This is what grief is. You're not alone. We are all on this journey together. Whether your loved one had brain cancer, a different form of cancer, or something happened to a loved one from a traumatic event, whatever the loss, you are not walking this journey alone. And however long it needs to take you to move through the journey of grief is okay. I've said before, it is like having your leg amputated, especially when you lose a spouse at a young age. It will take a very long time to figure out how to move. Missing that part of your body. Embrace those that are continuing to walk this journey with you. The ones who stay with you after a year, after two years, who stay with you for the rest of your life. Hold them close because they are special. Embrace the days that you're strong, but be okay with the days that you're not. Find a way to move through the grief. Don't ignore it. Don't put it aside. Don't put a pin in it. We all have something to learn from the trials that we are asked to face as we walk this earth. I am extremely fortunate to have had 20 years with the love of my life, but that doesn't make the pain of losing him any less, because it also means that I have to face 30 or 40 years without him. It also means I have to recognize and accept that I've lost our family unit, our children, the dreams of what was supposed to be and that is all part of the grieving process as well. This is a special episode. Our focus today will be on grief and loss as we recognize the one-year anniversary of my husband's passing. And in recognizing that, I have also hosted a fundraiser to raise awareness and necessary funds for brain cancer treatments and trials. At the end of this podcast today, I will give you information for Head for the Cure and for Roswell where you can donate if you so wish. And after a word from our partner, we will be joined by Dr. Erica Sarine, a leading expert in grief and loss. She has spent over 20 years in the field, and she has some very interesting and unique perspectives on what she has learned from helping others move through their grief and loss. She will join us next. <laughs>
2: When my mom was diagnosed with a brain tumor, I didn't know where to turn. How do I prepare myself as a caregiver? As a 22-year survivor, I've talked to hundreds of patients, mostly just listening and answering questions. I've visited dozen of websites, some good, but none I thought truly met the needs of survivors and caregivers. I found what I was looking for in Brains for the Cure. This is a resource I've been looking for. Not only did I learn a lot, but it also reassured both of us that we are not alone.
0: With resources and news from Brains for the Cure, patients and caregivers can advocate for themselves and become decision makers in their own journeys. Learn about treatment options and clinical trials and connect with other patients, survivors, caregivers, and medical professionals through our ambassadors, online support groups, and personal stories. Find out more at www.brainsforthecure.org.
1: Hi, welcome back. This is Shannon Traphagan, and you are listening to Game on Glio. We are now joined by Dr. Erica Sarine. She is a licensed clinical social worker with over 20 years of experience in the field of death, dying, and bereavement. She's currently the director of social work at St. Jude's Children Research Hospital. She is a grief counselor and educator. Her website is hopeandgrief.com, and she's also got a Facebook page by the same name. So, Erica, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you. It's a privilege to be here with you, Shannon.
1: So the reason we have Dr. Sarine with us today is because of the significance of this episode. It is officially the one-year anniversary of Mike's passing. And while we talk a lot about brain cancer in this podcast, we also focus a lot on grief and loss. We figured this was a really good episode to visit some of these other issues. So Erica, I wanted to start with telling us a little bit about what led you to going into the field of grief and loss.
2: Yeah, well, Shannon, you know, when I went into this field, I was a brand new uh, social worker, just graduated with my Master of Social Work degree, and I was working at a large hospital system in Central Florida. I completed my MSW internship with people who were recently diagnosed with and others who were living with HIV and AIDS. Mm-hmm. And I found in that work that. Oftentimes, I was moving toward the spaces that my colleagues were moving away from or avoiding. And so some of those places where family members were receiving a poor prognosis or having to take loved ones off of ventilators, And that really did start to lead to my work in this field. And I had the opportunity to begin working for a hospice and then running a children's grief center where we served children, adolescents, and adults. And I just learned that I I loved being with people who were experiencing difficulties because I also got to see them on the other side of those difficulties. And that was just a great privilege.
1: That's a huge testament to your personality and what you value. I, I know from being a previous social worker myself, I had worked in sexual abuse, child trauma, and domestic violence. So that was a heavy topic of its own. But mm-hmm. death and dying is such, there's just such heaviness to it. So it's a huge testament to you and who you are as a person, not only a clinician, that you do this kind of work and that you gravitated towards that. You've been doing this for, for 20 years, and you mention on your site that you're a thanatologist. Is that how it's pronounced? Yes, that's it. <laughs> what is a thanatologist?
2: Great question. Well, thanatology really is the study of death, dying, bereavement, and loss.
1: So I'm curious, after being in the field for as many years as you have been, what lessons have you learned along the way?
2: Oh, goodness. Um I think working in the field has shaped my entire outlook. You know, I remember very early on working with a senior adult who was in the last final month of his life. And at the time, my uh, daughter was very young. She was an infant. And I remember sort of walking out the door one day after seeing him, and he just started to impart these life lessons on me. And I realized that. His entire view of the world was different because he was facing the end of life. There's a quote, and I think it's by the famous person named Unknown, but it says, I have been thrust out of this world, which we all think is so important, and find myself standing on the edge of eternity. There, the view is very much different. Mm -hmm. And so I think early on, being a a 22, a 23, a 24-year-old, and Gaining incredible insight and wisdom from people at the end of their lives who taught me how important our moments are, who taught me to try to find joy mm-hmm. um, in my day, who taught me to try to be in the moment and to be present. And I, I have to tell you, Shannon, that even after 20 years in this field and journeying alongside people who are dying or who are bereaved, that's a moment by moment reminder that I have to give myself because it's just so easy to get wrapped up in the day-to-day. Mm-hmm. So I really think that they've shaped the way I I completely view the world. And and the other thing that I've learned is that human beings are resilient and are capable sometimes of more than we even know possible. And so I just had this incredible privilege of of sharing space with people who are experiencing extraordinarily difficult times. And yet I've also been able to be there in the moments when that light flickers inside of them again for the first time, you know, when all of a sudden they, they see a little hope Mm -hmm. or a little joy or a little laughter seeps through the tears. Mm -hmm. And I think I've learned a lot in those moments as well. So it really, I guess I'm supposed to be contributing in some way to the profession, but I would say that the people who have invited me to be a part of their stories have just, provided me exquisite wisdom that I don't know that I would have gained anywhere else.
1: That's so profound. <laughs> I'm wrapping my head around that for a moment because as you spoke about it, I was actually picturing Mike's last moments
2: hmm.
1: So, um, wow. and what I took from those last moments. Um, I'm curious, with everything that you've learned along the way, I know for a fact based on my own experiences and my, my previous history in the field, that there are gaps on the clinical side of how to handle and work in the area of grief and loss. What do you see as, as the shift or, or the gaps uh, from the clinical side of things?
2: Yeah, I think you're speaking truth and that there are still a lot of gaps in care. I think probably one of the most promising things now is that we're beginning to incorporate palliative care, which really does mean comfort care early on. Um, You know, even some practitioners are beginning to do that upon diagnosis so that we're able to really look at the whole person whenever we're providing treatment to them. And I think that is a beautiful change in the field. But I certainly think there are gaps in terms of really looking at the whole person still, right? And this is where I'm fortunate to be a social worker because Part of my job is looking at it from this lens, looking Mm -hmm. at it from the person and the environment, right? How is this diagnosis impacting the whole person? So even when a prognosis is, is wonderful, we forget sometimes the grief and loss that accompanies just the diagnosis alone. Right. And so I think that that is where sort of almost inviting in grief informed practice, if you will, um, and recognizing that grief accompanies all types of loss, not just death loss. And so I think that's, I think those are some areas that we can make some strides in. And I also think just in terms of our mental health practitioners, our clinical social workers, our psychologists, beginning to educate them more about grief and loss. Because right now in most of our textbooks and graduate schools, we get a paragraph if we're lucky. And it's typically on Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's stages of death and dying.
1: Ah. Uh. It makes me cringe.
2: Yes, yes. We could do an entire podcast just on that. But um, but that's what we get. That's what our practitioners are receiving. And then we're going out into our hospitals and, and hospices and healthcare agencies and, and private practices. And we're trying our best with just that little bit of information. And so there's certainly a gap there. And that really is what I'm committed to.
1: As you speak about this, I'm reminded of and think back not only to the experience that Mike and I had towards the end, but even even prior uh, when I was in the field, there were many times that I saw other clinicians or social workers that you could almost see the burnout. Uh, you could really feel it. There was kind of a numbness to the work that they were doing. So as they dealt with us, it became this thing where it was just, you know, it's just another case. Mm. We just have to check the box. And I've seen that time and time again. And what would you say to other clinicians or care workers out there that do this type of work about burnout? Because it really has a huge impact on the patient and the caregiver.
2: Yeah. And just hearing you share that experience and that just, that makes me sad to hear. And it makes me sad that that was your experience because certainly that is not a provider at their very best to be able to help enter that space with you. Right. Mm -hmm. And so first I would say that this work is not for everyone and, and that's hard for some people to realize, but it's just like, you know, I did not become a neurosurgeon because that work (laughs) would not be for me. And there are many other things that, that I don't do because it's just sort of, not within my calling, however you view the world, on how we get our jobs. But I think I would say that it's very important for people to recognize, to be in tune with their own bodies and to be in tune with their own minds when this work gets hard. Mm-hmm. I think it's very important to seek consultation and to make sure that you're working in an environment where vulnerability is appreciated and is not seen as a weakness. hmm So I think oftentimes providers in our field feel like we have to hold it together for everybody else. And so then when we're struggling, we often feel this this burden um, to just kind of tuck it away, if you will. And what happens is we experience loss as well. And we experience its resulting grief. Mm -hmm. And we need to have a place to be able to process that. I remember very early on, probably in my first year working at the hospice, I attended a funeral of a family that I had, um, gotten close with. And I obviously cried at that funeral. (laughs) Now I was not to the point where I wasn't able to provide care to anyone else if necessary, right. But we were (laughs) at a funeral service and I was also crying and expressing empathy. And I heard one of our uh, medical providers, again, this is many, many years ago, Mm -hmm. um, at the place where I was working at the time, say to me, I don't know how she's going to do this grief counseling work if she's already falling apart at a funeral.
1: That's interesting.
2: And I remember thinking, wow, that is exactly how I'm going to do this grief counseling work. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do this grief counseling work because I do have empathy and compassion at this funeral and I'm not just tucking that away right and so it just it was a really interesting perspective isn't it and that's how and she used that term quote falling apart and it's funny because I think in our society in general we tend to applaud those who are, quote, holding it together, which often means exactly what you just described as that caregiver in the room, the numbness Mm -hmm. and the kind of pushing our feelings inside. And then we label the other people, right? Whether they be family members, survivors, or caregivers as, quote, falling apart or, quote, losing it. And these are not my words. Please know I would not place (laughs) these words on people. And what it is, is it's that expression of emotion, we almost view that as bad. And actually, I would kind of try to flip that on its side and say that grief, which is sort of that internal response that we feel, those thoughts, feelings, and reactions we have, they need to be mourned, Mm -hmm. which is that outward expression. It's, It's the movement of that grief. And so... What you're describing is a symptom of a greater problem, and our practitioners are just humans living in a society that's telling them not to feel these things. Right. So, you know, a tangible thing I would do and something that I've done in my current role is started something called a compassion and support huddle where we as social workers are able to get together in a confidential space space and express our vulnerabilities and talk about those things that have been sad to us or hard for us. And also talk about the joys of our work and the ways in which we have grown, the ways in which our patients and family members have taught us something about life that we wouldn't have known without this work. And Mm -hmm. and so I think there needs to be equal space for both in order to support practitioners.
1: I think that's extremely, extremely important and very vital. um, And Hopefully, for anybody who's listening that is doing this type of work, you're able to take this information away and maybe bring it into your current practice or share it with your managers and, and supervisors because it could be extremely beneficial. I would also want to say that from the caregiver patient perspective, if you're in a position where you feel that the social worker, clinician, or palliative care representative you're working with, is giving those vibes and almost rationalizing the death that Mm. could potentially be coming up because that's kind of what happened with us was one of the social workers rationalized it Mm. um, and then attributed it, compared another death to what could be happening to him at the time because we didn't know yet Mm. if that was the avenue that was uh, laid out before us. And I had to advocate Mm-hmm. Uh, for Mike and I had to get a hold of the director of the social work program and say, "I'm not dealing with these people anymore. I'm dealing with you directly because this is what's happening." Yeah, and we haven't gotten to that point where we've lost hope yet. Yeah, and it feels like they they're they're trying to get us to that point, and we're not there. Yeah, and I think that's important for caregivers and patients to be able to do to be able to voice and advocate for themselves if they're feeling that from their clinician.
2: Yeah, beautifully stated, Shannon, because you are the best advocate for the patient. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: That family member, either advocating for yourself when you're able to do so, and when you lose your ability to advocate for yourself, don't we all hope that we have someone who loves us and will advocate for us on our behalf? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think I think you've said that well. And also, you know, you brought something else up that I think is so valid, and that's this idea that you know, everybody is in their own place on this journey. And as caregivers, and even as providers, sometimes we forget that people take different amounts of time to process different things. And so it's very important that we don't rush people. And in that vein, it's important that we don't feel pressure to rush ourselves.
1: Right, right. That's extremely important. So You seem to be kind of a jack-of-all-trades when it comes to grief and loss, and we are going to dive into some other areas that you're working in, but you also recently took on a new position at St. Jude's. So I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about that and what kind of spurred this new direction.
2: Yeah, I um, have the privilege now of serving as the Director of Social Work at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis. It's amazing every time uh, I get to go into work and walk the halls with patients and caregivers who are embarking on treatment and diagnosis. And it's it's just really an incredible um work to get to do. But one thing that sort of transitioned me to that is I'd been in practice. And um, when I was in practice for many years, I ended up pursuing my PhD because I really saw the disparity of training in this area, as I mentioned before, Mm -hmm. that I couldn't find a lot of great training to teach me how to do this work. And so I thought, you know, I can complain about it or I can try to do something about it. And so that really prompted me to pursue my PhD and that's what how I entered academia. And so I really was pursuing my PhD in social work to learn more about grief and loss, to study it, um, to learn how to conduct research. But, you know, I think as the pandemic made all of us reevaluate things, mm-hmm. I found myself over the past couple years really missing practice. And I thought, well, if I'm going to do that, I want to do that in a place that is both an academic institution and a medical institution that sort of blends teaching and practice and research together. And St. Jude does those things. So it really it really is a gift to be there.
1: Well, I can only say that St. Jude's is extremely lucky to have somebody like you on their team because I can't imagine that dealing with pediatric illness and disease and for the parents of those children dealing with grief and loss is hard enough as a young adult at any point really in life, Mm -hmm. but I can't imagine being the parent of a child walking those halls and walking that path. That is a very, it's a very slippery slope and it's a very um, hard path to be handed. So kudos to you because that's, that's, that takes a lot uh, to work in that kind of arena.
2: Thank you. I'll give kudos to our families because I agree with you. I think yes. they're awesome.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a lot to be handed in general. Um, mm-hmm. To have a, a parent who has to walk that path, is it's a very difficult thing. So I, I mm-hmm. tip my head um, to the parents out there who are walking this path. And I know that St. Jude's does handle many pediatric brain cancer cases, Yeah, that those are very difficult cases and uh, something we will be discussing in a later podcast as well. Good. So on your site... Uh, hopeandgrief.com you have a lot of blog posts and one stood out, well a couple of them, actually a lot of them stood out to me but one (laughs) in particular was called The Mm In-Between and I was wondering if you could discuss that a little bit, you know what that looks like and what it means to be in the in-between because I kind of feel like that's where I'm at right now
2: (laughs) Yeah you know I think So many people can relate to this space. And it wasn't until I found myself there for other circumstances that I thought, what is this place that I'm in? And I realized, oh, goodness, I'm in the place where all of my clients all of these years have been. And it's sort of this place. Following the moment where you feel as though you've experienced great loss, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. The moment after diagnosis or after death or after unemployment or a separation or really right now, truthfully, in the middle of a pandemic that's still going on, Mm -hmm. Um, any troubling circumstance, it's really that space where you are just courageously facing this uncertainty while you're also experiencing your sorrow and your disappointment and your grief and your loss. And so what I learned about these places in the in-between really was from my clients. You know, I, I thought for a moment when we're in the in-between, I, it feels like we might just be dismantled, you know, because we're just waiting. It feels like everything is suspended. We don't know what's going to happen in the future. And a bunch of people around us, and this is where I think my clients who have experienced grief can relate, is they instruct us to just hurry up and get out of the in-between.
1: Oh, that is so true
2: it almost feels like a ditch you know and people are like just dig your way out get out as fast as you can and we've all done this during the pandemic haven't we i mean we are just tired mm-hmm. um, of being here again and so what i think are sometimes the messages that we receive in, the, in between and certainly the messages we send ourselves are that this is just the yucky space and there's there's just no way there's going to be opportunity or growth or love or joy or meaning here it's just this is it sort of feels barren Mm-hmm. And yet I looked to the people who I know who have been there the most. And that blog post, I called them the in-betweeners. Mm-hmm. And they really taught me that our lives are never neat and tidy spaces, that we're sort of always in the in-between. We at least have one foot there maybe. And that even though it is anxiety provoking and confusing and filled with sorrow, that there can also be beauty and healing in those spaces. And so we have to just dig deep and we have to lean into uncertainty with hope or faith and continue to press forward in those in-between moments. Mm-hmm. And what I started to notice during the pandemic was the same things clients in grief were saying, which is once this is over, then I'm going to blank once I get through this hardship, then I'm going to do something else. And that represents this in between, right? Yeah. but there, we're waiting for one thing to, quote, resolve before we do anything else. And I think for me, what I've learned is we don't necessarily have to get through or, quote, get over something in order to still allow or maybe invite that hope or love or occasional laughter. And that we can even have that sometimes on the very same day that we feel lonely or that we feel sorrow or guilt, um, that maybe those don't even have to be separate books, right? Maybe they can be on the same page of one book.
1: What you're speaking about speaks to the heart of the exact difficulties of those who are suffering from grief and loss, because the in-between, that time period can last for however long it needs to last. Hmm. And I think that is the very frustrating part. Mm -hmm. my counselor and I go to counseling every single week and thank God for her because Mm -hmm. I think that's the only reason I'm, I'm standing that in my faith. And she says the exact same thing that it's Mm -hmm. a balancing act and you have to create space for all of it. And it's okay Mm -hmm. to feel sadness and to feel really lonely or isolated. And then an hour later, you're feeling a bit productive and maybe you're feeling okay and it's okay to feel those things on the same day and it's a tug of war that i'm i'm currently in coming up on his one year anniversary is there's this patience and stillness and lack of momentum mm-hmm. that has really started to kind of eat away at me a little bit mm. because i don't know what to do with myself right now. And I don't want to make any major decisions because mm-hmm. I'm slowly trying to move through this. But I think that is the the crux of what so many people feel and go through when they deal with such significant loss, especially when it turns your whole world upside down like it had when you're a young spouse and you've just lost your spouse mm-hmm. and you're the only one left in the household. It just changes the dynamic and the energy of every, everything else. And so it, it, that in-between is just... It's not a good feeling. (laughs) No,
2: no, it really is a bummer. Like that's the thing about it. It's not where anybody ever wants to be. I frequently remind people of this concept called convalescence. Mm. The definition of convalescence is a slow, gradual process of healing and recovery after an injury. Mm -hmm. And typically that definition is referring to physical injury, but I wonder what happens when we turn it and we think about it in terms of emotional injury.
1: mm mm-hmm interesting you know
2: that it's a slow gradual process of healing Mm -hmm. following an emotional injury and so we do sort of enter a period of convalescence it's natural it's I think our body's way of slowing us down and if you think about it if you were to get maybe your ACL repaired next Mm -hmm. week my guess is your orthopedic surgeon would not say hey if you want to get out there and run a marathon around the hospital tomorrow that'll really speed your recovery right just do it all all at once. No. In fact, what they would say is you're going to take five steps today and then you're going to sit back down because you can't take even 15 today. Because if you take too many, you're actually going to injure yourself more. You're going to inhibit your healing. Mm-hmm. And yet in grief, we often feel such pressure to just move as fast as possible. We want to run the marathon around the hospital and we don't necessarily realize that by doing it. hmm we could be inhibiting our own healing.
1: That's such a great analogy too, because as somebody who is fairly sporty and athletic, you know, when I've had past surgeries, I've gotten antsy and punchy and you just want to kind of get the <laughs> healing process going. And and that is yeah. what it feels like right now. I'm getting a bit punchy and, you know, I'm a bit frustrated because I can't speed anything up. This has to take however long it has to take. So it's such a great analogy because that really is what it feels like. Yeah. I'm curious, you know, as we're talking about this and, and the healing process, there seems to be behavior surrounding loss that can be extreme. And there are a lot of times, and I've heard it from other spouses who've lost their partner, that there've been many times where family members or a close loved one has blamed them mm-hmm. for the loss or directed their anger toward them. And i I have personally experienced that myself a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm curious if you could explain why this happens, you know, like what, what drives that and how can the person that that energy is being directed towards the caregiver who's lost their spouse or their loved one, mm-hmm. how can they navigate through that without it pulling them down even further?
2: Yeah, that's a great question, Shannon, because it can be so hurtful when you're already experiencing your own grief. Mm-hmm to then also feel the blame Mm -hmm. or anger directed at you from other people, it sort of exacerbates it. And so, yeah, I would say first, you know, there are so many different emotional and relational reactions to grief and anger is one of them. I mean, there are so many others, as you know, loneliness and fear, anxiety, but one thing that's helpful is to think about the emotions. I always say to people, the word emotion has the word motion within it, Mm. right? So our emotions need movement. Yeah, They're not supposed to be stuck inside. They need to come out. And I think what we're seeing and even what you're describing is somebody's ventilation of anger in a destructive way or an unhealthy way, right? Mm -hmm. Taking that emotion, but pointing it towards someone else. Mm -hmm. But the other piece about this is when we think about grief reactions, we're in survival mode to a certain extent because our brain has just experienced the greatest threat it's ever received. Yeah. Like your brain always knew your husband to be alive and to be loving and mm-hmm. and to be your partner. Right. And you gave your brain information that wasn't true and your brain is going to fight that in all kinds of ways. You know that's why it's not going to believe it at first. You're going to feel shock and so some of these are defense mechanisms. They mm-hmm. really are just sort of these primal and instinctual behaviors that are survival oriented, if you will. It's sort of this protest. I mean, anger is just protesting. You know what? Too much has already happened. Too much has already changed. I've already endured too much pain and I'm not going to take any more. And I'm going to push people away sometimes mm-hmm. because if I can just upset you enough and keep you at an arm's length, I don't ever have to worry about you being hurt or mm-hmm. you hurting me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's part of it. And then also grief just feels so unfair.
1: Yeah. And, yeah.
2: and it makes us mad. I mean, it just doesn't feel right. It's it's not the way we think the world is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we just get angry, and we can get angry at ourselves, and that sort of is what guilt is. Yeah. You know, it's that anger toward ourselves, and we can take it out on others. That said. When we're the recipient of someone else's anger and we are also experiencing our own grief, Mm -hmm. I think it's really healthy to have boundaries and to surround yourself with people who uplift your spirits and Mm -hmm. your soul or who hold space for you in the moments where you need to let all the sorrow out and to not feel an obligation to invite those who are imposing their anger on you to always be in your space.
1: Interesting.
2: You know, because everybody is processing in their own ways and, and probably, you know, we need a place to ventilate that anger. Right. I mean, I always tell people emotions have to come out. I mean, you know, <laughs> this is why we see a movie and we laugh uncontrollably to the point of tears because that the funny thing, right. That emotion of feeling something funny came out or why nope, we, it triggered it. you know, if, If we hit the lottery, we're going to start jumping around and throwing cash out at people and being, you know, (laughs) when we learn in that moment, we're going to, the joy is going to come out. And the same is true for anger and mood swings and all of these other things. But we have to learn to cope with them in constructive ways and healthy ways instead of destructive ways. Mm. Unfortunately, in our culture, sometimes we're taught to suppress our emotions and, yeah. and to not learn to ventilate them properly. And so with grief, they have a way of bubbling up to the surface yep. in spite of what we've been taught in the past. And so I think a lot of people need support through that to, to learn healthy ways to ventilate and also healthy ways to cope with all of their grief emotions, but especially anger.
1: Right. Now that makes a lot of sense. And I think that'll help a lot of caregivers who are listening. I know one in particular was really struggling with a family member in law Mm -hmm. who was really blaming her and holding her accountable for her husband's passing. And she was close to the whole family. And so she didn't want anything else to change. She didn't want to lose anything else. And so she kept trying really hard to kind of reach out and you know, wasn't getting a lot of contact in return. Mm. And so I think it made it harder for her because it was a member of his family
2: yeah, and
1: not just a friend yeah. or um, a distant relative. So I think these are, it's really important to understand this, mm-hmm. myself included.
2: Yeah. That's another loss.
1: It is. And that's something I've been learning. You know, I have lost some people throughout this, some that just can't understand where maybe emotionally my head is at especially a few months out i'm not the same person i was a year and a half ago mm-hmm. and so you do you lose people along the way and you hear it you you're warned about it <laughs> but mm-hmm. until you start to experience it you're like wow you know this is you, you just want to stop the hemorrhaging yeah there is a lot of that that happens because it's hard to understand um, especially mm-hmm. when you're so close to the loss
2: exactly yeah
1: i'm curious Because of the pandemic, if it exacerbates the severity of how someone handles a loss because of everything else, I know for Mike's passing, we were in the thick of the pandemic Mm -hmm. when he passed last October and regulations kept bouncing and changing and one minute people could come to the hospital and the next minute they couldn't, you know, extended family couldn't Mm -hmm. visit and then they could, you you know, you're constantly changing the instructions and the directions day to day. And none of his family lived right here. None of my family lives right here. And, you know, then it's trying to get everybody on the phone so that they can talk to him one last time, because we started to realize what might be happening. And Mm -hmm. that really exacerbates the stress and the trauma, Mm -hmm. um, Of losing somebody. And so I'm I'm curious to hear your thoughts on how the pandemic has played into especially saying goodbye or dealing with services after the fact.
2: Yeah. I mean, it has complicated it in a way that I don't know that researchers will completely understand for a couple more years. Um, I, I think what it's highlighted is we do know sort of this idea of compounded loss or cumulative grief, as some people call it, which Mm -hmm. really is just experiencing multiple losses in a short period of time. Because we've all experienced cumulative grief right now Mm -hmm. for so many non-death losses, then add to that the death losses that people have experienced. We know that that can have a significant impact on grief. I recently did a study on college students amid the pandemic, and the data was collected in November and December of 2020. So if I were to collect this data again now, it would be even more significant. Mm-hmm. But those who experience more losses also experience more negative coping reactions, things like avoidance or feeling more loss of control, which makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. We do know that in prior research has shown that people who can experience multiple losses or have experienced multiple losses at once sometimes take you know, a little bit longer in processing that grief because you're not processing just one loss. You're processing multiple things. And I think too, you hit on the fact of not necessarily being able to have family members or friends or support systems present with you at that time because of the pandemic and, and maybe missing on, out on some of the memorialization rituals mm-hmm. that, that are part of sort of how we bookend people's lives. Mm-hmm. And to not be able to have those moments definitely has added a layer of complexity And I think that's important for people to note because there has been some research. Dr. Kenneth Doka is a very well-known grief educator and researcher, and he talked about this idea, and many people have talked about it since, called disenfranchised grief.
1: Yes, I've heard of this.
2: And basically, he defines that like miscarriage and infertility are often disenfranchised griefs. It's these times where people experience loss, but they don't necessarily feel a socially recognized right to it because Mm -hmm. people dismiss it. And I think what we saw in the beginning of the pandemic is we were all dismissive of the losses that we were all experiencing. And as a result, it was disenfranchising our grief. And we know that disenfranchised grief can be a little bit harder to cope with because it feels isolating Mm -hmm. and it feels lonely so I think we want to guard against that.
1: So I'd like to tap into this for a second because you're touching on, on some buzz things, this idea of disenfranchised grief and this idea of multiple losses. It is an interesting dynamic and one that I think needs to be sussed out, frankly, because for me specifically, we suffered three miscarriages and then the loss of an adoption due to his diagnosis. Wow. And then I lost him 14 months later. So there are multiple, multiple losses. And I do feel that I have not really gotten through all of them. Mm -hmm. And I do feel that there is a bit of this disenfranchisement. Listeners have heard me say this a couple of times. I have a baby's room that is still fairly intact, you know, and a crib and Mm -hmm. baby's clothes. And I actually just recently sold the car seat and donated all of the diapers that we had had set aside. And that was extremely difficult. Mm -hmm. I still felt a little bit disconnected from the meaning of that. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's just so much going on that that's working through all of it is just too much all at once. So it's this concept of disenfranchisement is extremely interesting. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. It's almost like you have to prioritize, don't you? And I, I, mean, when I hear you talking about these multiple losses and these losses were before the diagnosis. And then in the moment of diagnosis, you're, you're survival oriented. I mean, you've you've got to deal with everything right in front of you. And, And that captures our attention in that moment. And then our attention moves to the prognosis change and then to the grief and to the loss. And it's when we're feeling some of these other things that we have these borrowed tears come up you know, um, for some of these other losses that we haven't necessarily processed. Mm -hmm. I think what you are doing is being aware of it. And I think that's really important. And even when you talk about, um, you know, taking that step that you decided you needed in that moment to donate things um, or to kind of memorialize some of those losses. Mm -hmm. And I think that takes time. And when we've experienced multiple losses at once, again, it's, Our brains are telling us this is too much at Mm -hmm. once. We have to prioritize here. (laughs) And so it all kind of gets, I think, messy together. Yeah. You know, it just gets, it's that compounded or, you know, loss where it all, Feels Like it's in in the same pot of stew almost and it's mm-hmm. hard sometimes to figure out okay Is the anger a result of this or this or is the guilt coming from this loss or this loss and I think In general, it's 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 coming because you're human and you've experienced so many Losses in such a short period of time
1: and there's this idea too of lo- of loss of the unknown of yeah. having so much stripped away and then losing the one tether you had left and then not knowing, will you become a parent or will you ever even have that opportunity now when you were so close before you seem Mm -hmm. further away from it now? So there's that loss as well. Mm -hmm. And I've heard from a number of young widows, men and women who Mm -hmm. are feeling like that because they feel like they've, there's this loss of opportunity that they had had such a desire for. And so I think that plays into it as well.
2: Yeah, we forget that even, even our grief counselors have to remember that, that when we're helping someone process the grief they're experiencing, for example, as a result of a death loss, mm-hmm. that's the loss of that primary person in our life. But then there are so many secondary losses in its wake, right? Yeah. There's loss of hopes and dreams and a loss of identity. Who am I now? I, I don't feel like myself anymore. I don't you know, I used to play tennis because he played tennis and I don't want to play with anybody else. And now mm-hmm. what do I do? You know, it's yeah. there are a lot of losses that come from just that one primary death loss that we have to sometimes unpack. And so I think part of what you're doing in this podcast is giving a voice to this. Yes. And that helps enfranchise our grief just mm-hmm. by somebody saying, oh, goodness, this is loss. Mm -hmm. This is loss that you're feeling. And those are grief reactions. And those are normal to have. Those are human. Just right there, giving it validity and normalizing it, I think is so helpful. And I think the more we speak openly about this, that's how we change a society and become more grief-informed in our neighborhoods and in our places of worship and in our schools and in our families and our communities.
1: Where we become less afraid to talk about it openly.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: So this is a great segue into, you have on your site what's called a grief survival toolkit. And I would love for you to explain this to our listeners because it is (laughs) extremely beneficial and very interesting. And I, I think a lot of people can take quite a bit away from this.
2: I wish there was an actual toolkit, right? I know, right? Like an
1: actual box. Yeah,
2: I did. I tried. A lot of people said to me, can you summarize some things that would be helpful? And so yes. I, I wrote that post. But, you know, I really think it's just that people that I've journeyed alongside have taught me things that are important to them.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And it's things like recognizing that there is no time frame on our grief and being patient with ourselves mm-hmm. and patient with others as we process this having self compassion again it's so easy to judge ourselves or to tell ourselves that we need to move at a different speed and and often as people, we extend way more compassion and empathy to others than we do to ourselves.
1: That is so so true. I, I do that. I am so much harder on myself through this whole thing than I am on anybody else.
2: Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're all, we're all sort of conditioned to be that way. Mm -hmm. You spoke about it, about the need for support, that this is not something that we should try to walk alone, but it's Mm -hmm. something that we want to seek out support, but we want to make sure that the support we're receiving is helpful. You know, I sometimes call it a hero. You know, Mm -hmm. sometimes this can be someone who's been on the journey before you. Mm -hmm. um, But not all of those people are helpful. And we know that some people actually make us feel worse when they come in to quote, help us. And so Mm -hmm. it's recognizing who are the people that when we're in their presence, maybe for a moment, our grief feels lighter, or softer. I I think about it like, I choose these people because if I were to carry a backpack filled with stones around and those stones represent all of my grief emotions, right? My, the reactions social, emotional, spiritual, physical reactions of grief. And they're so heavy. And when I get into one of these hope heroes, right into their presence, I can just sort of slam that backpack down on the ground and hear the weight of it hit and I can breathe Mm -hmm. and I can sit in their space Mm -hmm. and they don't rob my feelings. They don't steal them away. They don't placate them. They don't dismiss them. They don't tell me I'm just going to be fine.
1: Mm -hmm. Right. Yep.
2: But they hold the space with me so that when I'm ready to leave their presence again, I can just pick that bag up again. And maybe, maybe I'm even going to choose to leave one of those weights with them today. But even if I'm not ready for that and I put the backpack back on, mm-hmm. I feel as though I can carry it again.
1: I love that. You can visually picture it as you're describing it too.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think it's important to reach out to those people and they are there and they might not be in your inner circle and you might have to work really hard to try to find them, Yeah. but they are there. And then I also think, you know, things like having the, having courage and And processing our memories and our memories of loss can be painful and ambivalent. Yes. Um, And they can also be positive, but even the positive ones, sometimes early on in our grief, they cause us so much pain, even those really happy or joyful memories. And so having people with us who will give us permission to feel, who will support us and extend us compassion and empathy, just as we will try to extend that to ourselves. Right. And then, of course, to engage in our own practices of faith um, or spirituality or meditation or whatever it is for a person, however you connect to the world around you. Mm -hmm. I think that's important because that helps connect our whole personhood whenever we're processing
1: this journey. I think these are extremely helpful. And for our listeners, I hope that this gives you A moment to pause and take note of some of these tools that you can use as you walk through the journey that you are walking through. I am curious to know, dealing with the enormity of everything that you deal with on a day-to-day basis, how do you leave your grief at the door when you go home? How do you decompress from all of this?
2: Oh, good question, Shannon. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I think for me, faith is very important to me. And so I think that that helps me to recognize that I am a part of someone's journey, but it is not my journey. Mm. Um, And so that helps me as I'm supporting others. But I think a lot of it has come from seeing the resilience in my clients. I I think that really is what has helped me is that I do feel that it is a gift Mm -hmm. to do this work that I'm being invited in to share some of these difficulties with other people. And um, I continue to view it through that lens. And I think that's what's helped me throughout the years. I One of my very favorite quotes is by Meister Eckhart. And he said, truly, it is in the darkness that one finds the light. So when we are in sorrow, then this light is nearest of all to us. And I think what I have had the privilege of doing is sitting in those rooms that feel very dark with patients and families in those moments where they don't see any light themselves, it, mm-hmm. you know, not one little bit of it. And it's almost like I have the opportunity of of being able to see that that light is still within them, even though they feel it is so dim. And I just have the privilege of sort of fanning that flame until They come into my presence again, or they share with me that they've seen that light for themselves Wow! and they feel the warmth on their face again. And that takes a lot of time Mm -hmm. and it takes a lot of work,
1: but it's so beneficial to you.
2: It is. And seeing that with people and seeing that people have been willing to courageously share their journeys with me, Mm -hmm. um, motivates me to continue doing this work. And then of course, I could tell you the tangible things. Like sometimes I just have to go to kickboxing class because the world seems hard. And (laughs) sometimes I need my own help. Right. I have I'm surrounded by great practitioners who offer me mental health support when I need it. And so all of these things are still very important pieces of the puzzle. And so it's not just, well, there was a quote and gratitude and that made it easy. Um, But I think it's all of those things together that have been able to help sustain me in this work and also taking a break when I need it and taking mental health days, because sometimes It's really hard.
1: Those are important.
2: But as a helper, if I don't take care of myself, I don't have anything to help other
1: people with. So now where can people find you on social media? And do you have any speaking engagements or events coming up that um, our listeners would want to know about?
2: So they can follow me on Facebook. Hope and Grief is on Facebook, as you mentioned before. And then on Instagram, I'm Dr. sarine So they can find me there also. And on my website, I do keep upcoming speaking engagements. So I have a few continuing education events that I'll be providing for PESI, which is a continuing ed provider, and a few private events. So if anybody is interested in hosting a webinar or anything for their own organizations, mm-hmm. especially to help educate mental health practitioners, Um, they can reach out to me on my website as well.
1: Great. And the only other thing I wanted to ask was, are you doing any private counseling currently?
2: I'm not currently doing any private counseling because my job keeps me very busy.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I can only imagine. I
2: can recommend that um, it can be helpful for people in their communities to link up with their local hospice or palliative care provider because they often have great recommendations for grief Mm -hmm. counselors. In addition, if there's a child involved, The National Alliance for Grieving Children, it's childrengrieve.org, and they list all of the children's grief centers throughout the country. So they're a really great resource to caregivers who might have children who are bereaved and want to link up with a grief counselor.
1: Great. So I will make sure that all of that information is on our website. Hopeandgrief.com is Erica's website, and her blog is extremely educational, very beneficial. She even has a blog discussing the continuing bonds of love which I recently read which I thought was amazing so please feel free to visit her site Erica thank you so much for joining me today this has been extremely helpful and eye-opening and the discussion around them is very needed and very important right now
2: thank you so much for having me I'm very grateful to have been able to be here this afternoon
1: thank you so much for being here and we will be right back Rebuilding begins slowly. It takes time. Exactly when the transition starts to take place really depends. I had a widow ask me not too long ago. She reached out because of the podcast and asked me as I get closer to the one-year anniversary, and I hate to even say the word anniversary, the word anniversary to me feels like something that should be celebrated. I don't want to celebrate my husband's death, but it is a significant day. It's a day that I lost him. It's a day that my family, his family, our friends, all lost him. His colleagues lost him. So it is an anniversary. And this widow asked, as I get closer to this day, if I've started rebuilding, if I know what it feels like, if I can tell when it's happening. And you really can't, It's a process. It's a process that is individualized to every single person who is touched by grief, by loss, by trauma. And in some cases, like mine, it is threefold because there is significant trauma laced into the grief and the loss because of other losses that have occurred simultaneously. And that is a unique experience. So my experience of walking through this is going to be different than anybody else's. Your experience of grief and loss is going to be different. But what I can say is there is a rebuilding process. It is a navigation. It's like looking at a map and knowing that you're headed somewhere. You just don't know exactly where. You don't know where you're going to land. You know that your goals and your dreams are now different. But I don't think there's an aha moment. I know I am still wading through a lot with losing Mike. But I'm learning to trust that something beautiful and new will emerge in the face of this weakness, in the face of my tears, in the face of pain, and even in the face of hopelessness. I will live again. I am living. I am getting up each and every day. I am making decisions I am paying bills, I am taking care of the dogs, I am venturing out, I am meeting new people, I am doing activities that I never thought I would do. And that is something that I would encourage to anybody who is in the midst of walking through grief and loss. Try something new. Try something you haven't done before. Push yourself outside your comfort zone, even just a little bit, whether it's volunteering, learning to ride horses trying rowing or sailing, joining a club, maybe auditing a class, learning a new subject, finding some purpose in the grief that you are walking through. That will help you as you navigate through and start to rebuild your life after the loss. But as you're walking through this process, whatever it is that brought you to this place, remember that death may have ended the life, but it doesn't end the relationship. My relationship will never end with Mike. Even though he is no longer here, in some way, shape, or form, he will always be my husband. He will always be my soulmate. He will always be a part of my heart. That will not go away. Hearing this, you may think, wow, she sounds so strong and so confident, and this is easier than it seems. That's what it sounds like. But on the inside, I am scared out of my mind. My heart is terrified. I wouldn't wish this upon anybody and the process of walking through this because of his diagnosis has made it a bit more traumatic. Brain cancer is very difficult to walk through and very hard and filled with bumps in the road and fog and quick sharp turns, but you always land on your feet and there is a purpose and there is a reason. And while I don't know what it is yet, I do know that I will find my way. And so will each and every one of you out there who is listening. Ask for help. Seek counseling or therapy. Try a new activity. Join a group. If you have children, hold on to them. Embrace that a part of your loved one is inside of them. You get to carry his or her memory through them. Focus on one step, one day at a time. I was recently asked, what do you want for your life? what do you want to do? Those are very difficult questions to answer. Three years ago, I could have told you exactly. But when you lose a spouse, when you lose a core integral part of your life, everything shifts. Know that it's okay to not have an answer to those questions. One year in, one and a half years in, two years in, it will take the time that it takes to walk through it. And that's okay. I remember a trip to Ireland that my husband and I took together. It was a few years back. It was our first trip to Ireland and it helped inspire some of the story that I wrote for my first fictional novel, which has a lot to do with Irish folklore. And we came across a headstone that really struck me. Apparently the saying is a popular one. Death leaves a heartache no one can heal. Love leaves a memory no one can steal. So I leave that with you as we end today's episode. The love of the person you had in your life that you've lost will never fade. Be strong, be true, hold on to hope and just take one step one day at a time and you will slowly start to rebuild. It will creep up ever so slowly. It will happen without you even recognizing it. But one day you will look back and you will realize how far you've come. It is a journey I am still on. It is a journey I take with you. And we can walk hand in hand and take this journey together. Until next month, thank you for joining us.
0: Brains for the Cure is an innovative online resource to help brain tumor patients, survivors, and caregivers become advocates, educate themselves, and connect with others throughout each phase of their journey. We are proud to partner with the Game on Glio podcast. Visit brainsforthecure.org to learn more.
1: Thank you so much for joining us this week on the Game on Glio podcast. Make sure to visit our website, thegameongliopodcast.com, where you can subscribe to the show via Podbean, iTunes, iTunes. Google, Apple, Spotify, or via RSS, so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd love to hear what you think. Please post a review, give us a rating, or simply share with others so that they can listen to the show in the future. That'll help us too. If you like this show, you might want to check us out on Facebook at GameOnGLIO or on Instagram at Game on Gleo Podcast. We look forward to seeing you again next month for another exciting episode of the Game on Gleo Podcast.